Welcome to this Alan Obrey podcast. My name is Joseph Bragg and I'm an associate in Alan Obrey's London Funds and Asset Management Group. As we head into the new year, we're going to be talking about some of the key recent regulatory changes which asset managers and funds should have on their radar in 2024. We're also going to recap on where we are now with respect to some of the regulatory developments we previously mentioned in our similar podcast covering 2023. Joining me in the discussion today are Emma Danforth, who is a partner in our London Funds and Asset Management Group, and Vittoria Ferrone, who is a counsel with our Luxembourg Funds and Asset Management Group. Thank you both so much for joining. Thanks, Jay. It's nice to be back in 2024. Thanks, Joe. Happy New Year. So, Emma and Vittoria, looking back for a moment, the hot topics we considered at the start of 2023 were sustainability legislation, retailization of funds, and the UK's pro-spreading framework for funds. Where are we now on those topics as we move into 2024? Well, each of these areas continue to be hot topics. On the SG front, coming up to three years from the application of the SFDR, the European Commission is undertaking a comprehensive assessment of the framework to assess potential shortcomings, focusing on legal certainty, the usability of the regulation, and its ability to play its part in tackling greenwashing. One interesting point that arises from this assessment is that the European Commission may consider revamping the existing SFDR nomenclature altogether and turn SFDR into a labelling regime. This assessment included both a targeted consultation and a public consultation, which each closed in December. However, no rules are expected until after the new European Commission is in place at the end of 2024. Following a series of funds downgrading from Article 9 to Article 8 due to greenwashing concerns at the start of 2023, we have seen an increase in the number of Article 9 funds and expect that trend to continue throughout 2024. While we're on the topic of sustainability legislation, Emma, where do you think the UK is now on the Sustainable Disclosure Regulation, or SDR? Are we generally along the same lines as our EU counterparts? So you might recall that this time last year, we were anticipating the final rules for the SDR following a consultation published earlier that year. This was finally published in Q4 this 2023. Under the proposed labelling regime, four labels will distinguish between products based on the sustainability objective the product is seeking to achieve and on the primary and secondary channels by which the product may achieve a positive outcome for the environment and or society. To use a label, products must meet the general and specific criteria relating to that label on an ongoing basis, including having a sustainability objective with at least 70% of the product's assets invested in accordance with its sustainability objective. In many ways, the qualifying criteria under the SDR regime reflect the SFDR. For example, the requirements to monitor performance through sustainability indicators or KPIs and to disclose material adverse impacts and engagement policies. As a result, firms should be able to recycle much of the information they already use for their product categorization and disclosures under SFDR to meet the new SDR requirements. That said, there is a large gap between the defining criteria of the SDR labels and the SFDR's Article 8 and Article 9 products. And it's not as simple as the SDR product label criteria being transferred across to the SFDR regime without in-depth interpretation. Timing-wise, the SDRs will be phased in over a three-year time frame, with the first part taking effect on the 31st of May 2024. Moving on to the retailization of funds, the package of improvements to the current European Long-Term Investment Fund, ELTIF regime, known as ELTIF 2.0, entered into force in the first quarter of 2023, 
It will apply as of 10 January 2024 and is generally viewed by the market as significantly improving the ability of managers to access the retail investor part of the funds market when compared to its previous iterations. Over the past months, we've indeed experienced an increasing interest and appetite from market players in the use of LTIFs, with many clients already having proceeded to the conversion process of their existing LTIFs into LTIFs 2.0. The new regime is likely to significantly increase the LTIF supply and become the standard vehicle for private client investments in private markets. Thanks, Victoria. Could you perhaps tell us a bit more about the changes made to the original LTIF regime to make it more appealing? Sure. The 2.0 regime bolsters the appeal of LTIFs by broadening the scope of eligible assets for LTIFs, relaxing investment limits and borrowing rules, providing LTIF managers with operational flexibility and easing the rules regarding marketing to retail investors. If you recall, one of its key features is that the LTIF may take advantage of an EU retail marketing passport. The new regime therefore enables alternative asset managers to benefit from unprecedented cross-border access to EU retail investors, without many of the shortcomings of the initial LTIF regime. Indeed, some examples of the restrictive requirements under the original LTIF regulation include, with respect to the eligible assets, the fact that at least 70% of the fund must be invested in long term in such eligible assets. This percentage has now been lowered to 55% and the eligible assets have been clarified and expanded. LTIFs may only invest a limited amount of their capital, 20%, in other LTIFs, Eurekas and USEFs. Now, they will also be permitted to invest in EU AFES managed by EU firms or USEFs complying with certain requirements and master feeder structure will also be permitted, provided both the master and the feeder are LTIFs. Investors are subject to an asset check and a separate suitability test before being able to invest in an LTIF. Under the new regime, the asset check has been eliminated, as well as the separate suitability test, which has been integrated in the MIFID II suitability test. Looking forward to 2024 and hot off the press is that ESMA has published a final report setting out the Draft Regulatory Technical Standards, RTS, for the LTIF regulation, covering minimum holding period and maximum redemption frequency, as well as choice of liquidity management tool, notice period, and maximum percentage of liquid assets that can be redeemed. ESMA has submitted the draft RTS to the European Commission for endorsement and final approval, so any asset managers using LTIFs in their structures should keep an eye on this. At the other side of the channel, at the start of 2023, we flagged the development of the long-term asset fund LTAF. In July 2023, the FCA detailed the final rules which extended the LTAF's investor base to include previously restricted retail investors, such as direct contribution pension schemes and self-invested personal pensions. Uptake for LTAFs has generally been by managers seeking to unlock the UK retail sector, specifically through those pension funds. We've found that managers which are targeting a wider European investor base seem to be taking the view that the benefits of the LTAF regime are outweighed by the fact that the LTAF does not benefit from the EU-wide marketing passport and therefore have seen limited uptake from those managers. In our 2023 podcast, we also picked up on the operational part of the overseas fund regime, the OFR, and that continues to remain a work in progress. Just to recap from last year, under the OFR regime, the UK Treasury can approve specific countries and then specific types of collective investment schemes from those countries as being equivalent. 
This has been viewed as a key development as it provides a much more usable route to market to retail investors in the UK. The FCA is now consulting industry players on how this equivalent recognition process can be streamlined. That consultation closes on 12th of February, so we're hopeful there will be a significant process in this area during the course of this year, as we frequently advise clients who are looking for a simpler route to market to retail investors in the UK. What else is the UK's post-Brexit funds regime framework brought in, Emma? So at the end of 2022, we had the Chancellor's announcement of the Edinburgh reforms. And following on from that, the Financial Services and Markets Act 2023 has been passed, which builds a framework for the government to selectively unwind retained EU law and financial services and then create the UK's new regulatory framework. There's been lots of initiatives going on in the background, such as the FCA's 2023 discussion paper on the UK asset management regime. However, I think on the asset management side, nothing significant has yet crystallised into concrete legislation, although it's seeming increasingly likely that it will not be the bonfire of new regulation the UK government previously hinted at, but rather a much more gradual and granular change going forward. The key themes behind these initiatives continue to be improving the competitiveness of the UK markets, seeking opportunities to use innovative technologies and financial services, promoting effective use of capital, and supporting the UK's position as an independent trading nation. Victoria, focusing on what we need to keep close track of in 2024, one of the most significant pieces of legislation that finally came out in 2023 after extensive negotiations was AFND2. Briefly, what are the headline areas for asset managers to be aware of? Thanks, Joe. This is indeed the key regulatory development for our industry. AFMD2 aims to address some of the shortcomings and gaps identified in the original AFMD. And while it was initially expected that it would result in much harsher changes for asset managers, the end result has been somewhat less contentious. In a nutshell, AFMD2 introduces new rules for AFMs managing AFs that originate loans. It harmonizes liquidity management tools for open-ended AFs, enhances transparency and supervision of AIMs and their delegation arrangement, and updates some of the requirements for depositories. To pick up on the topic of delegation, delegation arrangements have long been an area of concern for ESMA and the EU Commission, and in the UK there were concerns that the AFMD2 reform may prohibit the delegation of portfolio management or risk management outside of the EU, meaning that the common structure whereby EU managers delegate portfolio management to a UK manager would no longer be feasible. What was the final position reached on delegation outside of the EU? The changes to the delegation regime are less impactful than expected. This delegation model is still permitted, but more substance requirements have been introduced. A critical change is that the businesses of EU AFMs will need to be conducted by at least two natural persons who are domiciled in the EU and who are either employed full-time by the EU AFM or are executive members of the board of the EU AFM and who are committed to conducting the business of the EU AFM on a full-time basis. These new requirements impose a heavier substance burden to be met by managers and possibly higher costs for host AFM models. This being said, it should be reminded that in Luxembourg there is already a requirement for AFMs to employ at least two conducting officers in Luxembourg who spend a full-time equivalent on the duties of the AFM. It's also worth noting that there had been hope in the industry that AFMD2 would provide for a depository passport to foster competition and lower fees, but unfortunately that was not included in the final text. Member states will now be allowed to implement limited cross-border depository services for the AFE domiciled in their territory, where a local depository is unavailable or where assets under custody are low in value. 
However, the appointment of a depository in a third country that is considered high risk or a non-cooperative jurisdiction in relation to tax matters is prohibited. Thank you so much, Victoria. Emma, one aspect of AFMD2 that's been causing issues for some of your clients is the changes in relation to loan origination funds. Please could you share a bit of background as to what the new loan origination funds requirements are? Of course. So AFMD2 creates a distinction between loan origination AFES and loan participation AFES. The definition of a loan origination AFE is now drafted very broadly, so that in addition to capturing any AFE that grants a loan directly, it also captures AFEs that grant a loan indirectly through a third party or SPV which originates a loan for or on behalf of the AFE, or in also where the AFIM or AFE is involved in structuring the loan or defining or pre-agreeing its characteristics prior to gaining exposure to the loan. That last limb really expands the scope of AFEs within the definition of loan origination AFEs, and arguably captures funds that we would not have typically viewed as performing loan origination. The key consequences of being a loan originating AFE are that firstly, loan originating AFEs are subject to a risk retention requirement, requiring them to retain 5% of the notional value of each loan they originated until the earlier of maturity or the expiry of a period of eight years. In effect, this prohibits an originate to distribute strategy. Second, Loan originating AFEs are subject to a leverage cap, which limits leverage to 175% for open-ended funds and 300% for closed-ended funds. Third, there's a requirement that the loan originating AFE must be closed-ended unless the AFIM can demonstrate to the competent national authority that it has a suitable liquidity management system and an appropriate redemption policy for the loan originating AFE. And finally, loan originating AFEs are subject to concentration limits and their exposure to a single financial undertaking, A4 USITs, cannot exceed 20% of their capital. It will be interesting to see how the market adapts to the rules for loan origination funds, particularly around the structuring of new or existing open-ended funds which may fall within the scope of these new rules. One point worth noting is that there are specific grandfathering rules that apply in relation to the loan origination requirements, which may be helpful. Different grandfathering rules apply to different requirements that apply to loan-originating AFEs, so the text needs to be considered carefully. And finally, what is the timing for the implementation of AFMD2? Well, the next step is waiting for the formal approval by the European Parliament and Council of the EU, both expected to consider them in the first quarter of 2024. Once adopted, the amending directive will be published in the official journal and enter into force 20 days after publication. Member states then have 24 months to implement the directive into their national law. Rules will then take effect from the date of implementation of the directive into the national law of the member state where an AFIM is located, subject, of course, to any grandfathering provisions that may apply. Thanks, Vittorio. Emma, moving back to the UK, I've heard there have been some changes made to UK limited partnerships. Yes, indeed. And these changes have been driven by the crackdown on corporate crime and fraud, a theme which can be seen internationally. In addition to additional compliance requirements, for example, limited partnerships will be required to submit annual confirmation statements confirming that the information held about them on the relevant UK register is correct. The key change for UK limited partnerships is that they now need to demonstrate a physical connection to the part of the UK in which they are registered by having to maintain their registered office there. This has compliance implications for limited partnerships who move their principal place of business outside the UK or switch to a non-UK general partner once they registered, something that it's not unusual to see as part of fund structuring, and in particular something we saw a fair bit of when the original AIFMD was implemented. 
Any such funds will now either need to appoint what is termed as an authorised corporate service provider or appoint a UK general partner if they don't already have one. Thank you so much, Emma and Victoria, for joining us and Pure Insights. And thank you all for listening. For those who would like to find out more about proposed re regulatory changes for funds and asset managers, please go to the Allen Avery website in the Asset Management and Funds section where further material can be found. Mm -hmm.